This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blah! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. It's $25 million worth of time that people are spending on these tasks that they feel like are are friction-filled. It's death by a thousand 10-minute tasks. They feel that they should be um, automated or should be refined or streamlined. Think about that sludge map. And if you can use it to build your case, then you should use it to build your case to get the resources and the maverick talent that you might need. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. Well, I am very excited to have my guest on the Delighted Customer Show, Stephanie Toome. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. It's so great to see you. I am so excited. So tell our audience a little bit about how you entered into the world of customer experience and how your career has kind of evolved, what you're doing right now. Sure. So I suppose that my first door opening into the CX world happened before we even had the term CX. I was um, working at Ernst & Young, now called EY, and I was asked to join this small cadre of up-and-coming uh, business development related people internally to put together a, a big interview program for the uh, customers and the clients of the organization. And so it was my job to go and meet one-on-one with our up-and-coming clients, our at-risk clients, and our big revenue clients to ask them, you know, what's going well? What could be better to really get a sense of their experiences? And so from there, my career grew into the realms of law and government. I did some consulting work and um, recently took a little bit of a pivot and took on a full-time role working for a global technology company advising at the C-level in executive communications. Uh, Today on this podcast, I'm going to speak for myself, but since you asked about the evolution of my career, that's been the way that it's evolved. Yeah, and and we're not going to spend a lot of time on executive communication because I really want to dig in. You just recently went for your doctorate, and I really want to dive into what you studied and how that could help people in the world leading change, like customer experience professionals. Uh, but when you say executive communication, like what, is, what does that mean? So in my job, I help the chief people and operating officer with her external messaging, social mm. media, um, speeches, public appearances, um, and those types of external types of engagements. I do also work some on the internal side as well in her meetings with employees and partners of the organization. Okay, so that must really be helpful to have a customer experience background when you're writing this. It absolutely helps to align with the purpose of the person that I advise. Excellent, excellent. All right, so you have just you you just went through a rigorous three year plus 
program to get your doctorate degree. Tell, tell us about that. Sure. La just last week, uh, final dissertation defense, all done. <laughs> that's, right, <laughs> that's right. So three and a half years, I started in March of 2020. And, you know, going into this program, I knew that I really wanted to do something in the realms of experience management. And I felt at that time that the world needed more of the rigor that is associated with academia to go into the materials that up and coming CX professionals might get their hands on as they're going through the education system, for example. And so that's the early vision that I had. And how I came out with this is I built over three and a half years, my dissertation on leadership and red tape theory. Now, red tape, a lot of people understand it as a metaphor associated with human hassle and their interactions with government, but it has literal origins and a scholarly theory to go with it. And of course, we still understand it as that metaphor associated with human hassle. So I studied the experience of red tape from a global leadership perspective with United States federal government administrative leaders. Okay. And, and you... Uh, you had some experience in the CX world with the federal government, correct? Yes. So for four years during the Obama administration, I worked elbow to elbow with political and um, career employees for a United States federal government agency as one of the federal government's first agency level chief customer officers. And it was before we had the coolness of the president's management agenda goals, which exist now and have existed over the last couple of presidential administrations. We also have executive orders and laws now in the realms of CX in the United States federal government. We've also seen a worldwide surge in other governments around the world that are trying to embed the practices and principles of experience management, CX, EX, vendor experience. Um, they're trying to inject these practices and principles into making things more efficient and easier for people while still upholding the, the the standards that they need to uphold to protect taxpayer interests, which is a delicate balancing act. Yeah. So when, when you think about uh, the idea of customer experience and federal government, it seems like a oxymoron, right? So what's the sudden, what's the interest? What, why, you know, it's monopoly essentially. Why are they interested? Oh, wow. So, that's a very common thing that that people mm. believe, why should government care? There are a lot of reasons why government should care. It's well known the financial benefits that can go into simplifying processes and streamlining processes. And mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to get rid of restrictions in order to streamline processes to be able to achieve some of those benefits of, of human-centered design, for example. The other thing is, yes, it does matter in the fact that um, constituents can write letters to their congressman or woman and talk about an agency and those letters wind up on the desk of an administrative leader or political leader at an agency. And sometimes the world comes to a stop at those agencies, which bottlenecks a lot of experiences for other people. And it takes a tremendous amount of time to um, sometimes just make sure that those letters get answered in the most appropriate way possible. So the agencies also need to, you know, look good in front of their stakeholders on Capitol Hill. So there are a lot of reasons. Of course, it's not the same as, as the private sector, not the exact same, but the, the notion that it's, um, you know, government is the only choice for a lot of people has some merit. It is true to a certain extent, but that doesn't mean 
government can't get the benefits of some of the practices and principles of the discipline to make their agencies better, more efficient, um, and more financially conscious. And everybody loves that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am incredibly encouraged that that is the case and that um, this is a shift. And you're right, there is all sorts of benefits, financial and otherwise, um, that, that go into that. Now, what, your study, what you studied for your doctorate is really interesting because when you think about red tape, you know, think about barriers of all kinds, bureaucratic barriers, they, they aren't limited, unfortunately, to the federal government. They do exist. And the CX leaders are po possibly the most familiar with all sorts of bureaucratic barriers. And, and we're, you know, change agents in many ways. So tell me what interested you about studying this topic. And I don't know, what are some of the key things that you took away from all the things that you studied? Well, I became interested in this topic and in the phenomenon of red tape during my time leading CX for a government agency. It was written in our strategic plan, which was a public facing document that the agency's people needed to get more in touch with how our customers, the customers, predominantly small businesses of the agency, experienced red tape and what that meant for them being able to um, reach into services they were entitled to. And did they choose to use them for the better of United States um, job creation and our way of life? And so that's when I, I, I heard the phrase before, but putting it in context in my job, because it was my job to put practices and principles in place to help us understand the experiences of our customers. And, and then when I started work on my doctoral degree, um, it just seemed like a natural inclination to want to take that topic because it really is at the heart of what makes an experience an experience. Just like I believe you just said, um, that friction, that sludge, those barriers, the inequities, the humiliation sometimes that those restrictions can cause people. But one of the biggest takeaways here is that it's uh, quite a juxtaposition for leaders because red tape also has benefits. Red tape can uphold structure. It can help to prevent prevent uh, fraud and cheating. It can help to protect taxpayer interests. So this is where leadership problem really starts to come in because um, program uptake is what is used to determine whether leaders have been successful or not. And 30 years of research has connected red tape to a lot of detriments, but we also know that it can serve a protective purpose. Meanwhile, the quantitative evidence shows that red tape persists in government. So it really shines a light on the fact that up and coming CX people or existing CX people really need to be in tune with the realities of what makes an experience an experience for a customer, what that looks like, feels like, sounds like, and what the range of perspectives might be with respect to rules, onerous processes, and restrictions. So it's quite a, a complex matter to be thinking about thoroughly, as is the responsibility of a leader. Yeah. And and you know that I worked in, in a bank in the in the metropolitan area. Stephanie and I know each other through the CXPA. Um, they had a Washington chapter, Washington local network, and we were part of that, I guess probably over a decade ago now. Um <laughs> and we got to know each other through that. And you know, I work for a bank, and of course banks are are uh, no stranger to regulations. And one of the ones that comes 
came to mind for me because my office, I shared a wall with our chief information security officer and, um, and he actually had the heating controls in his office for both of our offices. So I had to be nice to him Uh, (laughs) or I get smoked out in the summer or frozen out in the winter. Um, but he and I, he was also a part of our client experience leadership council. So he, he was attuned with it, but you know, we were struggling with the tension between keeping the banking customer client secure and making life easy for them. And, um, you know, maybe that's where the leadership comes in. Am I, am I thinking about that? Right. I think that you are. And I think that, um, the thing about red tape is you've got about half that usually think it's bad and half <laughs> think it's great. And that's where that, that additional friction can come in from a leadership perspective, but you're absolutely hitting on it. It's what makes um, this leadership complex. And you're calling attention to the fact that um, leaders coming into this profession need to fully understand that it's not necessarily a black and white thing that everybody's not going to necessarily agree so let me let me ask you this question. Just um, it may be a matter of semantics, and and if I'm listening, uh, or if I'm if someone's listening, they might have the same question. That's what that's what I try to think about is red tape. So when we think about red tape. I mean, it's a derogatory uh, connotation, and um, on the other hand, rules that set appropriate boundaries um, have a different so. A different connotation. So if people say, yes, you you need, a, no. even this one was hard sometimes, multi-factor authentication for access, you know, on online account access or account access. Um, you know, we, um, there are, there is a difference between, in my mind, and now I'm speaking on from a very personal standpoint, and maybe the technologies got caught up in almost two years that I've been out of the bank, but um, I opened an account. So if you open an account with a community bank, you're going to have to sign a signature card. You're going to have to use multi-factor authentication for things. You're going to maybe even have to call in, or if you want to do a wire transfer, go to a branch. Um, to, and this is all around the, the realm of security, right? But if you if you went to one of these larger banks, like I, I, I opened an account um, as we were moving here to Delaware from Maryland, and I opened an account for the purposes of uh, we had uh, sold our home, so we had quite a bit of money in a cash account that the larger bank was offering a, a serious bonus um, for, you know, during this transition until we needed to put money down on the new house. So um, they didn't ask for a signature card. They didn't ask for anything. And as I called them and said, you know, are you guys missing something? Because, like, you didn't ask me. We, I, my, my, my wife hasn't signed anything. I haven't signed anything. They said no. We don't need it. We have triangulated you based on all the data we have about you already. So we don't need it. And so that that creates another tension. So anyway, it's a long-winded way to say red tape, red tape has this connotation of unnecessary rules. Mm-hmm. Right. So tell me about that from what you studied and what you learned. And yeah. yeah. So there's also green tape 
And I think that's what you're oh. talking about as well. Um, oh. My scope was red tape. Green tape was outside the scope of my study, but there is such a thing as green tape theory. And that has to do with normal rules, the rules of a normal bureaucracy. We also have pink tape, by the way, which is a feminist angle on red tape that says to, something to the effect of um, red tape is even harder on women just because of the nature of how it's created and where it uh, ha carries the most burden. So there are other ways, but Green tape is in those realms. And again, that is another perception-oriented phenomenon that would be similar to red tape in that some people will view it as friction and upsetting, and other people will view it as being part of the normal part of the normal bureaucracy. And I did find this in my research as well, that there is a, a split in how uh, leaders view the rules. Sometimes it's just the rules. And there are certain things that they can do and there are certain things that they can't, but there are much to the point that you're making. Some people perceive as good and red as bad, but you're absolutely right. Red tape can um, conjure up images of just negativity. Yeah. So speaking of negativity, um, there was a saying, kill a stupid rule. It's, it's, it was it was one of our uh, meeting in a box uh, monthly events we had. Just think about what's going on in your area of the of the organization. Kill a stupid rule. Was that something that came up in the red tape world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there are some things that we know about rules that employees perceive as being onerous, as being mm. friction-filled, as being too time-consuming, or maybe even too complex what we know about those red tape perceptions is they can um, be sort of a gateway for looking at things like performance cheating, bribery, corruption, rule bending, or worse, humiliation, reduced change support intention for employees, reduced innovation, reduced inclination to want to engage with leaders. There's also this concept of guerrilla government, which can have a correlation to the private sector as well. And what that is, it's a fascinating concept of how employees can either deliberate, can deliberately, either covertly or out in the open, act out against leaders or their organizations, sometimes in response to these onerous complexities that are associated with doing their jobs. So when we're talking about killing a stupid rule, we have a great concept in mind. But I might ask at the end of the day, who decides if it's stupid? And that's where the juxtaposition can come in, because what one person might consider as being a stupid rule and processes and rules are usually linked to other things within the organization might have a ripple of impact to another piece of the organization where it can be perceived as something that you can't kill because of their risk. And you coming from the back banking background, of course, understand like the realms of risk and the different types of risk that be, that can be perceived by leaders with respect to the rules and why we have them. We're just talking about security, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really interesting. All right. So you and I talked beforehand and we talked and you mentioned it already once this new term that I have not heard of yet called sludge mass. Oh. Can you enlighten us as to what is sludge mass? Some people would say it's really the swamp inside the beltway, but I, I'm guessing you have a different so, definition than sludge so mass. It's sludge, just sludge. <laughs> and it shares a similar conceptual space with red tape, administrative burden, regulatory burden. It's a concept that's really been championed by Cass Sunstein, who was sort of at the ground zero of sludge creation during the Obama administration when he worked at um, OMB 
in an area of government that okayed or did not okay forms and, um, you know, things that the government wanted to send to citizens to fill out that he served at the, the ground zero. So he's really championed this um, concept of sludge, but there is this quite a crossover into the private sector with respect to sludge being forced to stand in a customer service line, being forced to sit in a, a phone queue, that's sludge. Um, mm. Being forced to fill out paperwork to get a rebate. That's another example that Cass talks about. Cass has a great book called Sludge. And I definitely, I highly recommend it for all CX people. But it shares a similar conceptual space. We're not seeing as much on sludge in the scholarship yet. But it is definitely up and coming. There are glimmers of sludge coming up in the same way that red tape and administrative burden have grown in scholarship, we're seeing sludge um, start to come forth. I mean, it's a horrible word, but it's a great word. Yes. <laughs> it's a great descriptor. Yes, yes. Some might equate it to friction, but sludge yeah. is the friction is kind of a general word that you see in scholarship. Um, and sludge has sort of a different meaning, but it does share that similar conceptual space. That's something when we're thinking about um, these concepts being in the same conceptual space, they don't have the exact same definitions, but they do share a space because they're sometimes used interchangeably. Sometimes people mm -hmm. use the word bureaucracy to indicate red tape or sludge or administrative burden. Yeah. But what, what you're saying is that you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and it's it's a matter sometimes of whose perception. So that's 5,000 hours a week. Now, let's say everybody makes $100 an hour. So that's $500,000 a week. Now let's multiply it by 50 weeks for a year. Because most people work about 50 weeks in a year, right? If they work full time, it's $25 million worth of time that people are spending on these tasks that they feel like are are friction-filled, it's death by a thousand 10-minute tasks. They feel that they should be um, automated or should be refined or streamlined. Think about that sludge map. And if you can use it to build your case, then you should use it to build your case to get the resources and the maverick talent that you might need to cut through some of the barriers that are keeping you from being able to make these really good in your employees' lives. Yeah, so... Um, look for those opportunities where you can get rid of, I think we used to call it non-value that don't really bring any value right, to the customer. Right, right. Right. So um, anything else that you want to share that you picked up or you learned um, in your doctorate program that comes to mind that we didn't talk Maybe about Maybe more yet? about this notion of followership. You know, Leaders cannot lead. Followership. My, my PhD is in global leadership with an emphasis in organizational management. It's incumbent upon leaders who are, you know, stepping up into that leadership role. It's very, it's, it's a more difficult proposition for them now because there is such this, you know, different uh, landscape for leaders now. It's not the same as it was, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, the fact that when you're thinking about making change and you're thinking about stepping into these leadership roles you can't think about um you can't think about the role in leader-centric terms you have to get in tune with your followers and their expectations and that requires a different skill set than you might have had to cultivate 10 or 20 years ago so a large part would be staying in tune listening to them 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Truly listening to them. Uh, you can't turn them. I, I find that um, I found this in my consulting work that it seems to be pretty easy to say, well, just one little thing won't hurt. And those mm-hmm. one little, those things pile up over time and mm-hmm. cannot turn a blind eye to those things that pile up because you're, as a leader, you are at risk uh, every day of being t- possibly torn down on social media. So there's more risk to being a leader now, but there is still, you know, there's still a reward. And, and I could see this now playing out in your current role in executive communications with kind of hearing, listening to what's going on and then writing you know, in, in communication with the executives that you, that you work with, right? Sure. You have to be empathy, um, a good listener. Mm. And, um, that's, that's great advice that my boss offers as well. Being willing to listen. Um, my boss has mentioned that, um, sometimes it can be difficult when you escalate the ranks to want to listen, but you must, you must listen and that mm-hmm. makes a difference between being a, a terrific leader and one that maybe is dissatisfied, winds up being dissatisfied in their role. Interesting stuff, Stephanie. So interested, uh, interesting to talk about this idea of red tape. You know, we're, we experience it all the time, um, you know, defining it, uh, breaking down the definitions of red tape versus bureaucracy versus sludge. Um it, it just really makes you think more from the other person's view. We, we call them customers, I guess, in the government, they're citizens, um, could be passengers, guests, uh, depending on who you're serving, right? And students. Um, so uh, first of all, congratulations. I can now call you Dr. Toom. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and go ahead. Nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and um, g- would you would you share with us this question? I, l- I like to ask my guests at the end of our conversations: Is what advice would you give to your twenty year old self? Hang in there. Mm. Not wrong. When you're twenty, I think you can feel instincts, and then you're so young, and you think, uh, well, I don't know if I'm right about this. Your gut instinct can be pretty dead on sometimes. And I think that if I could give advice to my 20-year-old self, I would say, keep going. You're not wrong. Don't spend your time being worried about whether or not it's the right decision. You're going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, could you have predicted the path that would lead you to 2023 at your age getting a PhD? (laughs) Well, I knew that I wanted to do it. For me, I knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to do it. I'd hoped that eventually, um, and I, I did feel that it eventually would happen. Um, so I may have envisioned it, but um, you know, now that it's done, it sure feels great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I so enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.